everyone. Welcome to the Legalese Podcast. This podcast brings you truth, power, and awareness. I am your host, Mel Marie. Today, we'll be discussing how the destruction of a family led to a state battling with the difficult decision of enacting the death penalty. The family? The Pettit family lived in Cheshire, Connecticut, also known as the bedding capital for people who garden and work as, work as farmers. William, or Bill Pettit, was born on September 24th in 1956 in Southington, Connecticut, and he grew up in Plainville, Connecticut. After graduating high school, he earned his undergraduate degree from Dartmouth University and a medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, followed by a fellowship in endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. Jennifer Hawk Pettit was born on September 26th, 1958, Jennifer was a pretty woman who was the captain of the Trojanette team, as she also led in school plays and was on the homecoming court. Jennifer became a nurse and was also the co-director of the health center at the Cheshire Academy. Bill and Jennifer met at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in 1985 when she was a new oncology nurse and he was a third year medical student. Sparks erupted immediately, and the couple got married later on that year. On October 15th in 1989, the couple welcomed their eldest daughter, Haley. Um, A few years later, they welcomed their youngest daughter, Michaela, who was born on November 17th, 1995. Growing up, Haley loved playing varsity uh, cross-country and basketball, while Michaela liked to cook and help others. In early 19... In early 2000s, uh, Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, also known as MS, and this led Haley to creating a fundraiser and advocating for multiple sclerosis research, and she led the walk called Haley's Hope. Overall, the family was well-loved and involved in their community and was known as a wholesome family. Okay, and so for the attackers, the first person is Steve Hayes. He was born on May 30th in 1963. He grew up with his mother and his two brothers, Brian and Matthew. According to his brothers, he's described as manipulative, violent, and a deceiving person. For example, Steve got into a fight with Brian and broke three of his ribs. Matt also detailed the story of Steve harming him and other people. Attention, Detective Fran Budwitz of the Connecticut State Police. I give this statement to aid and assist those who now have the burden and huge responsibility of seeking justice. My earliest memories of Steve go back to age four or five. Steve presented himself as the apple of everyone's eye. What many people did not see was the brother I knew. Being young and naive, I arrived home from school in seventh grade. Stephen and his friends were using the oven to try out some marijuana. He turned on the burner on the stove. He told me it was really cool and put my hand over it. It's cool, you won't get hurt. As soon as I put my hand over the burner, he pushed my hand onto the hot burner. And I had ring scars that lasted for months. To say there hasn't been a history of violence, well, this this should serve to say the predisposition was there. It was always there. Within two months of moving, Steve took my mother's car in the middle of the night. Upon calling the police, the relationship with my mom, Stephen, and the law enforcement officials began. Stephen is not sick. 
Stephen is cunning and calculating. Please exercise discretion. I will assist how I can. However, there is enough to hang him without any family involvement. Stephen is alone. He will answer to God. He will answer to the law. And my prayer is he will answer to himself before fate hands him his final sentence. Okay, so you just heard the clip with Steve's brothers describing how violent he was. Steve said growing up he was sexually assaulted and that he was disconnected from people and constantly used drugs. He also said that he had a lot of run-ins with the law and he committed mostly car burglaries. And due to the crimes that he committed, he said that he was suicidal and depressed. The next person um, we have is Josh Kamensarjewski. And he was born on August 10th, 1980. He was adopted at three years old by the Kamensarjewski family. And growing up, he also was sexually assaulted um, by um, Scott who was another boy who was adopted into the family. His adoptive parents were religious, and he grew up in the church. And he was being told that homosexuality was a sin and bad. Yet again, when he was at home, he was engaging in these acts against his will. Uh, Josh found solace in relationships. And one of his girlfriends, Fran Hodges, dated him when she was 14 to 15 years old, and they met in the church. He told her that he was not safe at home, um, but being in the woods made him feel safe. And after constant trauma, Josh was committed to Elcrest, which is a psychiatric facility, against his parents' wishes. He was also suicidal, and his parents rejected therapy and giving him medications due to their beliefs. They preferred um, to take him to church um, centers for prayers instead. Early in uh, Josh's adulthood, he had a relationship with Claire and Caroline Messel, uh, but specifically had more of a relationship and a longer relationship with Caroline. The girl's father, Rev. Norman Messel, said Josh wanted them because they were young. He also said Josh wanted to marry Caroline, but he, the father was concerned that Josh was a career criminal and a pedophile. Caroline, however, described Josh as a hopeless romantic, and he said that he wanted to have a family with her and to live in a really nice house. She admitted as well that Josh tried tying her up during sex and she viewed him however as her soulmate and this relationship also continued while he was in prison. In 2002 Josh was sentenced to nine years in prison and was paroled in April of 2007. There was no evidence showing he would commit burglary again due to no documented acts of drug use. Um, he had a job at the time and had housing. Because the forms were not sent to the Department of Corrections in a timely manner, the Corrections Committee believed they had a first-time offender. Paired with Josh being young, white, bright, remorseful, uh, and he did not identify as one, a person with mental health needs, 
Um, if he had, if they had received his past history, uh, Josh would have been in prison for the rest of his life due to burglary being a 10-year sentence for each offense. But that did not happen. Will Grace, uh, Josh's lawyer, described him as frail, polite, and a, an extremely smart kid, especially when burglarizing. He said that Josh used latex gloves and had night vision goggles when he was uh, robbing people. Will said that Josh would stay in the house, walk around, and hear people breathing in the middle of the night while they were asleep. Uh, Will described Josh as sick and said that he needed to be watched. The criminal past of Steve and Josh meshed their paths together. Their therapeutic counselor said Josh wanted to stay clean and sober, um, and he wanted to go to school and was extremely artistic. The counselor also said that Steve knew everything about Narcotics Anonymous, also known as NA, and he knew the book like the back of his hand. The therapeutic counselor said um, that Steve had unresolved anger issues, um, and that he used drugs to relieve his stress. And he also wanted something big to happen so he can leave his mother's home. Leading up to the event, the therapeutic counselor said that Steve and Josh talked every day. And on May in 2007, both of them were released from the halfway house. On Friday, July 20th in 2007, Steve and his mother got into a big argument and she kicked him out of the house. Steve then went to the hotel room and locked himself in there with cocaine and he wanted to OD in hopes that he died by suicide. After that failed attempt, um, he went to an AA meeting where he met Josh again and Josh told him that he knew how to get some money. So from then on, the two started texting each other about robbing a house. On Sunday, July 22nd in 2007, they followed Jennifer and Michelle um, to the store called uh, Stop and Shop. On Monday, Caroline, Josh's girlfriend, tried to call him, um, but he wasn't answering his phone. And she told her mother that something may be wrong because Josh typically answers the phone. She then calls Josh's mom and the mother says that Josh went out late Sunday night wearing a dark clothing and he only does that when he's going to rob homes. On Monday July 23rd in 2007 at 3 a.m. Josh and Steven entered the Pettit home and hit Bill on the head with a bat. Then they found Jennifer and tied her up. Josh went to go see KK also known as uh, Michaela and he went in her room and talked to her. At 4 a.m., the two said they looked through the house to find beer to drink, um, money, and other valuable items. Steve, Steven then expressed concerns to Josh about leaving DNA around the house, which led Josh to suggest that burning the house would allow for the removal of D DNA evidence. By 7 a.m., Steven takes the Pettit's car along with, um, to fill the gas, to go to the gas station to fill up gas containers. 
while Steven was gone, Josh sexually assaulted Michaela, again, who was 11 years old at the time, and took photos of her. Around 8.30 a.m., Steven untied Jennifer and, per and took her to the bank. He tells her not to tell anyone what is going on. By 9.10, uh, Jennifer is still in the bank and Steve begins panicking, but he called Josh and Josh told him to remain calm. A few moments later, Jennifer returns to the car with the money and Steve takes her home. When they arrive, Josh tells Steven that he left DNA with one of the girls and he had to kill them. He also said that Bill died from his injuries and that Steve needed to Steven needed to kill Jennifer. While the story unfolds, around 9.21 a.m., a 911 call was made by Mary Lyons, the bank manager. Mary told 911 that Jen and her, said that her husband and children were being held hostages in the home and Mary said that Jen came to withdraw around $15,000 um, for the people that were in the car. And so let's take a listen to that 911 call. My name is Mary Lyons. I'm the banking center manager. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told, they will kill the children and the husband. Her name is Jennifer Pettit, P-E-T-I-T. -T. Okay, she's still in the bank? Yes, she is. Okay, she's being held? Her, 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 her husband, husband and family is being held? Yes. At their house? Yes, they're tied up. She said they drove her here. I'm trying to look and see where she's gone. She went outside, but I don't... Oh, wait, I see her walking out. She is petrified. Within the next 30 minutes, Stephen sexually assaults Jennifer and kills her from asphyxiation and strangulation. Bill, again, who was in the basement, managed to escape through a small window. To make matters worse, the cops were at the home, but did not call or enter the home. They only upped their perimeter around the house. At 9.56 a.m., the cops see the suspects leaving the home. At 9.57 a.m., the cops see fire coming from the house. Steve and Josh tried to escape the home, but they crashed into the police car and were captured. Josh explained who he was and listed the people that were in the house, while Steven uh, gives a fake name to the cops and said that he didn't know if anyone was in the house. At the scene, the police said that they heard girls screaming in the fire and that the girls died from smoke inhalation. Now let's take a listen to Josh's interrogation videos. Today's date is July 23rd, 2007. Statement is taking place at the Cheshire Police Department headquarters. Joshua, comma, suggest. Do you know why you're here? For a, uh home invasion gone terribly wrong. Okay. And you went to stop and shop in Cheshire? I was waiting for a contractor uh, to make payment. While waiting, I saw a mother and a daughter. For whatever reason, I 
chose to follow the mom and the daughter um, to their house and saw that they lived in a very nice house. Thought it'd be nice to be there someday. And Mr. Hayes and I made our way over to the house and donned face masks and put on rubber gloves. And we noticed that the father was sleeping downstairs. I could see Mr. Hayes in the window motioning to, to strike him and get it over with. I hit him in the head with the baseball bat. He let off this unworthy scream. I just kept hitting him until he finally packed up into the corner of the couch. Mr. Hayes and I uh, proceeded up the stairway. Strays put his hand over mom's mouth and shook her gently awake. I followed suit with the youngest daughters. I tied her feet and Mr. Hayes tied her hands. We put um, pillowcases over the occupants' heads. Um, yeah. yeah, so that they couldn't see us. Peggy's room and sat down and we were talking about school and some plans and I got her a glass of water. KK, obviously she told you her nickname or whatever, it's KK or you made that up? No, that's the name that both her sister and her mother uh, referred to her as. I went down to check on dad and then went into Peggy's room and you know, one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up performing oral sex on KK. You performed oral sex on KK? On okay, KK. Okay. Her hands were tied, but her feet weren't. Did you take pictures of her? Uh, I did, yes. I had let her get dressed again, but before she did that, she uh, asked if she could take a shower. Now, you said you let her get dressed again. How, how is it she came upon being undressed? Because you originally said she was dressed. I had, uh, I used a pair of scissors and had cut her, her shirt off and her skirt off. Steve had come back to the house and uh, he had the money in his hands. He uh, says, uh, very matter of factly, okay, you're ready. We gotta, we have to kill them and burn the house. I'm like, I'm not killing anyone. There's no way. Well, then, you know, I'll kill the two daughters and you can kill the mom. I was like, I'm not killing anyone. No one's dying on my hand today. And finally, he was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll take care of all three of them. I hear this noise down in the basement. Which is where the dad was. Which is right where the dad was. I jumped up, uh, screaming to Steve that the father just took off. I could see behind Steve that uh, the mother was laying uh, life was on the floor and her pants were down around her ankles. Steven hears Josh telling him they have to leave, spread the gasoline and let's get out of here. He then went up the stairs uh, with two bottles. Uh, it was like, you can't seriously be contemplating burning these, these two girls alive. 
I went to KK's room. There was no gasoline in there, she was still in her bed, and I closed the door. And then I went down to the oldest daughter's room, I closed that door, and I went downstairs. Why did you so, close the doors? So I don't, I don't, you I knew they were tied, but you closed the doors. I didn't even think about it, I don't like, I, it didn't, for, for whatever stupid reason, like, it just didn't cross my mind until he comes racing back down the stairs and he throws one of the empty bottles into the kitchen. Empty bottles of? Of, of gas. Of gasoline. So he went back up with another with bottle another of gas? another bottle of gas. He's stumbling with this oversized pack of matches and I can still see this person in the grass watching him. Okay. And the entire kitchen just erupts. Yeah, in like a sea of flame. I had already had my back turned and I'm running for the door. I fucked up, you know, I, I got myself in this horrible position, but, you know, they did, a, they, they did what they were supposed to do. There, there's no reason for them to die. The Aftermath. Bill and the family held a memorial service on July 28th, 2007. Jennifer's family wrote, le- wrote letters to the police department for answers. Um, And the family said that the department did not sit down with them to provide closure or information regarding the case. The community was livid. The townspeople said that the area was peaceful and this led to people installing security systems and enacting protective measures to be safe. Everyone said that Josh was guilty and 75% of the community wanted him dead. Bill... Um, began to advocate for the death penalty. However, Connecticut was in the process of abolishing the death penalty. Josh's parents constantly had media at their home. After persistent attention, they posted a note on their door stating the following. This is an absolute tragedy. Our deepest sympathy goes out to the Pettit family and all those whose lives they touched. We cannot understand what would have made something like this happen. There is nothing else we can say at this time. However, Josh's aunt and uncle were in disbelief and they called him a monster. On November 7th of 2007, the court imposed a gag order which stopped the police, lawyers, and witnesses from speaking to the media. On January 6th of 2008, Cheshire held a vigil for the Pettit family. On May 30th of 2008, the Pettit home was demolished and transformed into a memorial garden. In 2009, the Connecticut legislator votes uh, to abolish the death penalty. The governor uh, named uh, Governor Rao vetoes the bill and cites the Cheshire murder. During this time, the defense wanted the trial moved out of New Haven due to the negative press, but the judge denied the request. While um, in and out of court, Stephen was feeling remorseful, and his brother Matt received a call from his attorney, Stephen's attorney, stating that Stephen tried to make a suicide attempt and was in a coma. Stephen was expected to be in court the following day, so let's hear a little bit of what happened. It's about 11 o'clock this morning, my time, Pacific time, and uh, one of Stephen's attorneys called. They 
went in to check on him this morning and uh, he was unresponsive. Stephen's lying in a coma induced by, you know, a medical team. They're not sharing why. You know, the attorney said that he could very well die. They're expected to be back in court tomorrow. They can't proceed without him in the room. Stephen squirreled away nine or so doses of Thorazine and Clonopin. And you, you might question how this could happen. About a year before this, Stephen Hayes had made a suicide attempt. And one of the things they found in his cell was a suicide note. I quote, I am sorry. All I want to do is die. It is the only way to end the pain I go through every day, 24-7, and more important, the pain that trial will bring to others. Time to go to the last undiscovered country. Although I am not the monster that Josh is, I am one nevertheless. A coward, because I could not do what was right. Looking back on my life, I was nothing but a self-centered asshole who cared only of himself. But the ironic facet to this is I have always had the ability to change but cowards don't change they become me after the attempt uh, Stephen was placed in a safe cell and wore Ferguson clothing so he could not tear his clothes to make a noose and the trial started three years later after the original incident Stephen and Josh were given six counts each of capital felony murder, and the court wanted to seek the death penalty. The death penalty could not uh, be imposed without a trial. Both of them pled guilty and accepted life without parole. So the word of the day is death penalty, also referred to as capital punishment, and it is the punishment of execution administered to someone legally convicted of capital crime. For this trial, the jury had to make two decisions. The first one was to determine the guilt or innocence of the suspects and uh, if they deserved the death penalty. On November 8th of 2010, Stephen was sentenced to the death penalty. One year later, he asked the court to put him to death immediately, but the request was denied. On December 9th of 2011, Josh was found guilty on count 5, 10, and 11 and sentenced to the death penalty. So let's take a listen to Bill and the family's uh, point of view regarding the verdict. We are satisfied that the defendant has been judged to be the murderer, the rapist, and criminal that he is. And now he's been condemned for the ultimate penalty. We certainly have been criticized over the years that this is vengeance and bloodlust, but this is really about justice. We uh, want to go forward with the Pettit Family Foundation and try to continue to create good out of evil. And well, the defense did what they thought they should do. I thought a lot of it was particularly distasteful. We saw picture after picture after picture. And every time one of those pictures went up, I thought, Charles Manson was a baby once. I'm not sure that this is particularly relevant. I'd just like to thank our justice system as well as the jury members. 
listening to a lot of things that they would much rather not heard or seen. I believe that without our defense attorneys, we could not have the um, outcome that we have. So we have to even be appreciative that there are defense attorneys that will take cases like this. And I believe God's will has been done. The death penalty process is expected to last more than a decade and will cost about $7 million. In April of 2012, Connecticut abolished the death penalty for future cases, making it difficult for Josh and Steven to be executed. Again, later on that year, it was repealed in Connecticut and the attackers were resentenced to life without parole. And so that is the end of the story. But um, Bill had a, uh, I guess, a up, <laughs> a good thing that occurred to him later on in life. He met Christine Pilov, and they married in 2012. And he met her while she was working with his foundation, the Pettit Family Foundation. And the couple later on had a son named William Pettit the third in 2016. Uh, William decided to run for office and he won the election to the Connecticut House of Representatives for from the 22nd district. And so that's the, you know, end result of that tragic story. Um, again, thank you all for listening and tuning in. Uh, the song of the week is Plastic Off the Sofa off of by Beyonce off of her Renaissance album. Please take a listen. It's really good. Um, you can stream this on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Pocket Cast, Anchor, Overcast, Stitcher, Radio Public, and more. Thank you for speaking our language and thank you for listening to the Legalese podcast. Have a great day. Be safe. Bye.